welcome to the final episode of The Expressionist for 2017. I'm Helen Rystrand, and here I am with... Me, Olivia Rosenman. Now, before I go any further, did you know that we have a newsletter? It's easy to sign up. Just go straight to our website and a little window will pop up and you can just put in your name and email address and then Bob's your uncle. Fanny's your aunt. You will be on the newsletter list. The website is expressionist.audio. Now, following on from our last episode on the expressions of the silly season, and as the year is drawing to a close and all of us are gearing up for the new one, we thought what better way to ring in the new year than with a few more seasonally appropriate idioms. It is time to talk about turning over a new leaf with New Year's resolutions right after you've let your hair down and painted the town red on the last night of the year. Woo! Let's start as we mean to go on though. Olive. What are your resolutions for 2018? Helen, I'm not much of a resolution maker myself. In fact, to me, New Year's just seems like the most terrible time to turn over a new leaf, to make a resolution, to do something different, because you've still got at least a month of all the vice-ridden activities that summer and the holidays often entail. So I've also often heard many people say that their New Year's resolutions will start in February, which is also pretty funny slash ridiculous. But what about you, Helen? Do you make New Year's resolutions? I do actually make a a bit of a resolution. I'm never prepared on New Year's Eve. But in the first few days of the new year, I usually kind of come up with a few cliched objectives for the next year. Well, seeing as we're recording this in advance of December 31, Helen, perhaps you could turn over a new leaf and start getting prepared for those resolutions in advance? I mean, I have made that plan before also. Okay, so at this time of year, many people would be on holidays. Many people might be lying on the beach reading. So actually, ironically, if you go back to the original sense of the word leaf in turning over a new leaf, lying on the beach in January is in fact the perfect time to do that. Do you follow what I'm getting at, Helen? I mean, I'm sort of getting the vibe. You're talking about when you just like cover yourself in leaves to protect you from the sun. (laughs) Do you do that? (laughs) No. I'm just making a wild guess. It's a good one. I mean, good is probably... It's not a good one. It's a funny one. No, Helen, that's not what I mean. What I'm actually referring to here is the page of a book. So, in fact, the leaf that is referred to in To Turn Over a New Leaf, which just means to adopt a new course of action or behaviour that will change something or someone for the better, in case you weren't aware, that leaf is actually the page of a book, not the leaf of a plant or other kind of vegetation. In this way, it's actually related to to take a leaf out of someone else's book. Mm -hmm. And in fact, to turn over a new leaf actually used to mean just any kind of change or also meant change for the worse. So it wasn't necessarily a change for the better, as I think it exclusively is now. Would you agree? I would agree, yeah. So I I guess if I'm thinking about it in the planty way, which I sort of do, like I have the vibe that it's about a book as well, but a plant, like a new leaf is like new growth and like fresh beginnings and all that sort of stuff. So I guess that's kind of the muddle of ideas that people tend to have. Which is an interesting point, Helen, and hold that thought because we will come back to it. But perhaps first I'll tell you the first recorded usage of to turn over a new leaf in English writing. 
Please do. So according to the Oxford English Dictionary, this was in 1535 in a publication of letters that were compiled in a book called The Lyle Letters. And they were a collection of around about 3,000 letters written from Arthur Plantagenet, who was an illegitimate son of King Edward IV and his family and his household while he was the Lord Deputy of Calais from 1533 to 1540. Helen, are you familiar with this text? I'm not familiar with the text, no. Well, in fact, it was a very useful text because they painted a vivid picture of the political and domestic life of the aristocracy of the time. Fantastic. So the quote in this letter, Dr. Latimer hath turned over the leaf, for he preached, acknowledging the Pope's authority to be the highest upon earth. So that's an interesting time, right? Right about the time that the Church of England was being formed and there was this conflict. Was it the Pope or was it Henry VIII that people should pay their religious allegiances to? I feel that this idiom is pretty commonly used these days. People say it all the time, turning over a new leaf. Totally, and especially at this time of year. So I searched for it as a phrase in news articles and I found that it's also commonly used in articles about brands and advertising about criminals and also other disadvantaged people, homeless people. And can you guess the third group of people it is often used in relation to, Helen? No, I can't. Celebrities. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so celebrities are always turning over a new leaf. And I think, you know, that's often because they can often get mixed up. You know, the lifestyle of a celebrity often can involve certain things that might you know, become problems that need mm-hmm. leaves turned. So just recently, Justin Bieber has turned over a new leaf about something or other, Miley Cyrus, Aaron Carter. I didn't bother reading because I assume it was sex or drugs or eating or not eating or alcohol or all of the above. But one celebrity's new leaf I do want to tell you about because I think it's particularly fantastic. Pamela Anderson famously turned over a new leaf in 2003 when she was on a PETA poster. That's the people for the ethical treatment of animals, uh, and she was wearing a bikini made of three lettuce leaves. Turn over a new leaf, try vegetarian. So it turns out Pamela has actually been a vegetarian since she was a teen. She's now a vegan. She runs a lot of vegan restaurants, and she's like a hardcore environmental and animal rights activist. I've been an animal activist since I was little, you know, rolling nickels and quarters and sending them off to animal causes, so... Wow, what a surprise. Yeah, who knew? Go Pam. So, Helen, all of this got me thinking about the origin of New Year's resolutions and why we continue to make them, seeing as it's very well documented that we fail far more than we succeed. I can attest to that. (laughs) So it seems that the first recorded usage of New Year's resolution as a phrase appeared in a Boston newspaper in 1813, and it was in a short article titled The Friday Lecture by an unknown author, and I'd like to read it to you because I think it's very funny. And yet, I believe there are multitudes of people accustomed to receive injunctions of New Year resolutions who will sin all the month of December with a serious determination of beginning the New Year with new resolutions and new behaviour, and with the full belief that they shall thus expiate and wipe away their former faults. So I think that that's a delightfully puritanical rant there. But what I think is funny is that it shows that it's a long history of weeks of debauchery over the silly season. I think so. But, of course, the idea of wiping the slate clean and turning over a new leaf in a new year goes back much further than that. And interesting that you mentioned 
about plants earlier, Helen, because in fact, the oldest idea of New Year's resolutions goes way back to the Babylonians. And in case you need a refresher, Babylonia was an ancient state or cultural area that was when modern day Iraq now is. And they were doing their thing around 4,000 years ago. So the Babylonians had this 12-day religious festival known as Akitu, where they crowned a new king or they just reaffirmed their loyalty to the reigning king if there wasn't going to be a new one. And they also made promises to the gods to pay their debt and return any objects that they had borrowed. But what is interesting is that this new year was not, in fact, in January, but it was around the time of mid-March, which was when all the new crops were planted. So there's your plant connection, Helen. Nice. I like that a lot. But what I think is really interesting and important about the Babylonians' resolutions was that there were ramifications if you didn't follow them, which there just aren't these days, which is perhaps why like 99% of people who make New Year's resolutions break them. Disclosure, that statistic was completely made up, but I reckon it's pretty accurate. So if they kept to their word, their pagan gods would bestow favor upon them in the coming year. And if they didn't, well, they weren't in the gods' favor, and that is not a place that you want to be, is it? No, I haven't found it to be particularly good myself. (laughs) So a little bit later, uh, in ancient Rome, there was a similar idea of New Year's resolutions. So when Julius Caesar established the Julian calendar, which, reminder, was a precursor to the Gregorian calendar that we use now, and it started with the month of January. And so he established January 1st as being the beginning of the new year. And that was around 45 BC that he did that. So January, the month, was named after Janus, who is the two-faced god whose spirit inhabited doorways and arches. And the special significance there, I mean, it kind of makes sense, right, was that Janus was symbolically looking back into the year that was and forward ahead into the year and into the future. I love it. Yeah. It's a bit spooky though, right? Yeah, definitely. But I think that that's uh, the right feeling to have at New Year's. Hmm. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Basically, the Romans would make sacrifices to Janus and make promises to him of good conduct for the coming year because he was watching. So, yeah, Helen, maybe when you make these resolutions this year, just remember that uh, Janus is watching. I'll try to. Moving onward, in the Middle Ages, there was a similar notion of a New Year's resolution. And this is by far my favourite because it's the peacock vow. The peacock vow. That's right. That's right. So medieval knights, during the last feast of the Christmas week, they would have this ceremony where they would place their hands on either a live or a roasted peacock. It apparently didn't matter. And then they would recommit themselves for the next 12 months to the ideals of chivalry and to the king. How delightful. And I know you're a Dickens fan. Helen. I am indeed. So in fact, Dickens wrote about the Peacock Vow in the periodical that he founded that was called All the Year Round. Mm -hmm. So he explained that the Peacock perfectly represented the majesty of the king because of, quote, the splendor and variety of their colors. Mm -hmm. I mean, they must have also been pretty exotic, right? They're from India for the Middle Ages. Yeah. Are they? They're not any native peacocks to England? No, they have pheasants. Oh, yeah. So actually, and I should have said this, they would sometimes do it with a pheasant if a peacock was not available. Right. Which must have been in quite a few cases. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) Now, I should also say that it's not entirely clear that this peacock 
vow or peacock oath was significantly associated with the new year. But regardless, I think it's a pretty great celebration. And I might suggest celebrating the end of 2017 and the beginning of 2018 with a roasted peacock myself, if I can find one. Do you think they have them at Harris Farm? I don't reckon they have them there. Oh. You probably have to hunt down your own in the zoo. Oh. They're just wandering about free in the Taronga Zoo. No one will notice. Oh, excellent. I think that the roasted peacock would be great. I mean, what better way to let your hair down and paint the town red than with a large roasted exotic fowl? I mean, I think you're onto something there. Let's see if we can make it happen. So, Olive... We both have short hair these days. So do you think our hair is permanently up or permanently down? Oh, that's a good question. First of all, let me just say that people with short hair are the best. Yes. Second of all, I consider my hair neither up nor down, but out. Ah, I like that. Mm. Nice. So obviously I asked because that is the first partying idiom that I want to talk about today. I remember being sort of mystified by it as a primary school kid because it appears in a song that we had to sing, which I now know was written by some guy called Gus Cannon in 1929. And here is a version of it recorded by the folk trio The Rooftop Singers in 1962. Walk right in, set right down Baby, let your hair hang down Walk right in, set right down Baby, let your hair hang down Great song. Did you find it baffling as a child? No, I thought it made perfect sense. I mean, when you let your hair down, it feels much more comfortable. I haven't always had short hair, Helen, and I am aware of the fact that it's much more comfortable to have your hair down than tied up. So letting your hair down is sort of a way of relaxing and letting loose a little bit. Mm-hmm, exactly. So the place that it comes from is exactly that. So this is a, you know, it's a pretty straightforward idiom in many ways. Um, It's from the time when all women had long hair and the sign that you had reached womanhood was that you would start wearing it up, pinned up in some kind of elaborate hairstyle. And so if you're doing that and you've got a lot of hair, obviously it's going to be quite uncomfortable really to wear out. So once you hit that stage of your life, it's actually indecent to go out with it let down or out. And you would only let it down at home, around family and close friends. Intimate. It's a kind of intimate thing. So apparently a young man could ask his fiance if he could see her with her hair down. It would be a bit of a sexy sort of request. But you could never ask somebody if, um, well, you wouldn't ask someone that you respected if you weren't actually engaged or something. Wow. Interesting, huh? So the figurative meaning is, of course, to throw off reserve or to become confidential, as in to start telling people things about yourself. The Oxford English Dictionary's first example of this figurative meaning is from 1850. And also, comically to my immature ears, at least, in older examples, you can talk about your back hair, as in letting your back hair down. Another thing, Olive, do you know the word dishevelled? Helen, I know that word very, very well. (laughs) Can you tell us what it means? To be not very well presented. You might have a shirt that needs an iron with a stain on it and your hair might have not been brushed well. It's kind of like the opposite of presentable. I think that's exactly right. But actually, originally it referred to just having your hair down. It's from an older French word for hair, chevelle. And the original sense was having the hair uncovered and later then it referred to the hair itself hanging loose, meaning then disordered or untidy. 
I feel like it has some kind of connection to being like a bit of a loose woman if you have like messy hair. It's a bit like bed must perhaps. Mm. And as evidence though of how or at least when letting your hair down got to be about letting loose and having a good time, I submit this song from the Hair Day of Long Hair by an Australian muso called Stevie Wright, who was the former frontman of the Easy Beats. Here is 1974's Evie. Great tunes, Helen, great tunes. That might be a great song on a night out painting the town red. It might indeed inspire that kind of a thing. True. So this one, painting the town red, has a more complicated history or perhaps you might say it has a variety of different historical options. So the Oxford English Dictionary has the definition, of course, to enjoy oneself flamboyantly. Great word. To go on a boisterous or exuberant spree. <laughs> Sounds like a good time. Yeah. Um, and its first example sentence is from 1882. And the most obvious suggestion is that on such a spree, you might get up to things that result in a lot of bloodshed. Oh. Whether by accident or through brawling or whatever. Get a downer? It is a little. Or maybe it's just, you know, all part of the great story of the night. There is also an obsolete meaning of paint from the 19th century as meaning to drink. Oh. Which is interesting, but there's more. Okay. So there are multiple stories, as I mentioned. I'm going to just follow your lead in previous episodes and order them from most unlikely to most likely slash most compelling and most popular. Great. So the first one that I found that it comes from ancient times when Roman legions used to wash the walls of conquered towns with the blood of the defeated people. Yeah, I mean, sounds... Dumb. Dumb. Sounds dumb. Gross. Yeah. Stinky. I mean, it just sounds like a lot of effort. Yeah. And I think as this was presented as a question in a, um, you know, to an expert forum, and the person replied, well, actually... Romans took a lot of slaves rather than just massacring everyone in Mm -hmm. the towns. Uh, So we'll cross that one off. Next, I found one letter writer to the Guardian's Semantic Enigma column claim that, according to Oscar Wilde, it's from Dante's Inferno. Quote, we are they who painted the world scarlet with sins. What I think is interesting about this is that it points out, like, the use of the word scarlet, actually, that brings in that you know, sense of vice and sin and all of the sort of racier um, elements of human experience in there that's connected to the painting the town red, so drinking and debauchery and... Yeah, and isn't it funny that that is the connotation of that colour because that colour is the colour of the stuff what makes us blood. Exactly. All of those impulses are in our blood. Exactly right. It which does. I say they are. That's as it's our kind of carnal, worldly selves as opposed to our higher selves mm-hmm. that is engaged there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that could be true, but it is unlikely to be the main one, I would say. Hmm. Anyone who has read Dante and remembers this, please let us know. 
So the next explanation that I found was that is an American slang expression, which means to be wildly extravagant. And originally the metaphor actually applied to bonfires, painting the sky or scenery red. So it's this kind of reflected light. It's less of a debauch necessarily and more just like a big party, I imagine. Yeah. Unless, you know, your idea of a great party is to light someone's house on fire or something. It's not mine. No. No. But I do like a party with a bonfire. Yeah, I mean, that does does make for a nice a nice occasion. Okay, so what's number four? Number four is the Mad Marquis of Waterford. So <laughs> the Mad Marquis is Henry de la Poa Beresford, who was a marquis in the Leicestershire town of Melton Mowbray, 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 Melton, Melton Mowbray. And there is a story, much publicised apparently by the tourist office in that town, that in 1837, the Mad Marquis, who was a notorious hooligan apparently, he's listed in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography as a reprobate and landowner. You know, that's not a bad byline, I suppose. I think those two go hand in hand. (laughs) So the story is that he and a bunch of mates went into the town one night and literally painted everything red. Just for shits and giggles? Exactly right. Why not? Yeah. So many people, of course, uh, question this tale. Not so much question the tale, actually. No one seems to question the fact that it happened. They question that that's where the phrase comes from. Because there's a gap of about 50 years, nearly, between when he went on this amazing debauch and when it actually appears in the written record. And there's a gap of enormous geographical distance as well. So this is in Leicestershire in England. And the first example that we have in the OED is from a publication in Kentucky in the United States. I mean, he's an amazing kind of a guy. I've got to say, his misdeeds include fighting, stealing, being invited to leave Oxford University, breaking windows, literally upsetting apple carts, fighting duels, and last but not least, painting the heels of a parson's horse with aniseed and then hunting him with bloodhounds. Oh, gosh. I mean, he sounds like a massive jerk, I've got to say. Yeah, a real rapscallion. Indeed. So that is the Marquis of Waterford. That's the best we've got. I think it's a good tale. I'd go with that one. I prefer it to all the others. I like it. So I think the phrase is pretty often used, and it's because of the bloody kind of connotations that we've already mentioned. It suggested itself to a couple of interesting recent pop culture products. One is a computer game, which is called Paint the Town Red, which is described as a chaotic first-person melee combat game. Weird. Okay. I mean, lots of people are into that. Yeah. And then the other thing that a lot of people are into is, of course, vampires. So there is a little Canadian short film I've come across called Paint the Town Red, and it is about vampires in the club. Right. Well, Helen, I think we've worked pretty hard this year. I think so too. And... I think that we should probably just go out and paint the town red. Let's do that. So that's it for the Expressionists for today and for 2017. Thank you so much for being with us this year. And while we've been talking about chivalry and New Year's resolutions, have you considered making one of yours to support independent creators like us? 
Because you can. We make it really easy. We are on Patreon, which is a platform that helps people like us get paid. And you can go straight to our Patreon site, www.patreon.com forward slash expodcast. And you can even set that up now to kick in on the 1st of January so that you don't have to give it another thought. If you're not up to speed with all of our 15 episodes and you've got some time over the Christmas and New Year break, why not catch up on our back catalogue? You can find all of that on any good podcast player or on our website, expressionist.audio. And if you're sitting on a beach scrolling mindlessly through your Facebook feed, why not drop us a line? Tell us about an idiom that you've seen out there in the world or send us a question. We'll happily investigate. So once again, I do just want to thank you all for listening. Have a lovely, happy new year. And we'll see you in January with a very special and exciting show for our first episode of 2018. I'm Olivia Rosenman. And I'm Helen Reidstrand. And we'll see you next time on The Expressionists. Bye. Walk right in. Sit right down. Hang down.